And the title of my message is Big People Speak Up. That's not big people physically, okay? And it's not speak up loudly. Big people speak up is talking about people who are big in spirit, who are big in character. People who are big inside speak up. And when I say speak up, I'm not talking about loudly. I'm talking about they speak positively. They speak life into situations. Big people speak up. The opposite of that is true. Small people speak things down. And speaking is a critical element and part. So, so I'm preaching this morning for tomorrow. This is not a message for Sunday. This is a message for Monday. Because this is just going to be one seriously practical message on what comes out of your heart. And Luke 6, 45 says this, What you say flows from what's in your heart. Jesus said that. What you say flows out of what's in your heart. Have any of you been afraid by what's flowed out of your mouth when your kids have done something stupid? Or when someone you know has done something not clever? And you, and you, and you can kind of lose it in a moment. And you realize that that stuff didn't just manifest. It didn't just come out of nowhere. That stuff was actually hiding somewhere in here. Do you know that that's true? Does that scare anyone? That that's actually inside of you when you lose your temper, when you lose your cool, when you say things you shouldn't say. It actually didn't just come from your lips. Because it's out of the overflow of your heart that your lips speak. And so what I'm saying is we need to check our hearts this morning because it influences the way that we speak. And the way that we talk is absolutely critical. The Bible has two well, it has many, but it has two very distinct ways of looking at the tongue and the ways of looking at our words. And one of them is the way on the left there. And Proverbs 10 verse 11 says, The words of the godly are a life-giving fountain. Doesn't that make you just think of like nourishment of life? Like, like uh, For me, when I think of words being life like a fountain, I think of being in a desert where it's dry and parched and difficult and you're struggling, and all of a sudden there's this fountain. There's this oasis that's there. You can just drink as much as you want. Words can be like that. Words can actually build people up. They can nourish people. They can grow people. They can help people. They can get them beyond their circumstances. Your words, just the silly words that you string together and make a sentence of, can help people go from here to here. If that wasn't true, everything that I do is a bit useless. Because then I'm just talking. Everything that every teacher does across the world is useless. But if you take those words and you use them correctly and in the right order and in the right way, people get educated in schools. If you use them, there's a life. And it's so important that we see the power of the words that come out of our mouths because the opposite is true. The tongue is, a restless, is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Any of you had a word spoken to you by someone and it just brought you death? in an area of your life. You ever had that where someone just says you're not good enough? You're not good looking enough? You shouldn't even try. You're not going to make that team. Whatever it might be. When I was young, when I was, I think I was about eight or nine. I can't really remember. I haven't got a fantastic memory, but this memory got lodged here. I had a party at my house one day. 
It was a birthday party, you know, as children do, but you're at that age where you can sort of kind of organize it yourself and your parents, you know, they just put in the money and you make the things happen. And we had this party and I had this friend and he had an older brother and his brother could dance really well. Now, this is a really silly example, but you're going to understand in a second. He could dance really well. Well, I thought so at the age of eight or nine. I thought, man, this guy looks cool. And he taught his brother, and his brother came to my party, and at my party we were dancing, and he said, whoa, what are you doing? That's not dancing. Can I tell you something? That lodged itself here. That was a long time ago. I mean, that was like five years ago, six years ago now. No, it was a while ago. But I don't have a good memory, but that stuck. And I thought, oh, gosh. Now, there's a nine-year-old boy I mean, who even knows what looking cool is? And nowadays, really, anything goes, right? So it's a weird thing. But that spoke death over a small part of my life where I just thought, I actually don't want to do this. I don't feel confident doing this. People are better at this than me. I'm no good at this thing. I'm just going to leave that out. You know what? My life will be fine if I just take this little compartment of dancing and just neglect it. But we do that with much bigger things. We do that with things that we can't achieve. You can't do this. You can do this. Have you ever had death spoken over you just by the words that someone said? You know what I'm talking about then. It's powerful. We've got to learn to take responsibility for our words. So being a big person doesn't have anything to do with being physically big. I'm going to go through a story now, and it is a really well-known story, and so you need to forgive me and walk with me in this journey. It's a story that you all know well. You could probably tell me the story of David and Goliath. Could you? Could you give me the, I'm sure you could give me the gist of it at least. But there's some detail there. And, and like all Bible stories, and this is the cool thing about the Bible, is that you can look at it from very many different angles. I mean, sometimes when you read a verse and you're going through something... Six months later, when you read that verse, you you see something different in it. But it's the same verse. How does that work? Every single bit of Scripture is God-breathed. It is inspired. It is dynamic, which means that it's multifaceted. It's like looking at a beautiful diamond. And you can look at it from the top, and it looks very different to what it looks like from the side or from that angle or in this light. And the Word of God is like that. Sometimes you can look at it, and it can just be exactly what you need right now. But then three years later, you look at the same verse, and it's exactly what you need right now, even though it's different what you're going through. You know what I'm saying? And David and Goliath is one of those things. It's one of those stories that, okay, we all know it. We know what happens. David wins. Good one. Spoiler alert. Okay, it's done. But there's more to it. And what I want to highlight this morning is the talking aspect of the story. And maybe you haven't ever looked at the story like that, but it's to take a look. You you know physically what happens in the story. But what happens with the dialogue? Because the point this morning is that our words can take us and other people up or down. And we need to be careful about the things that we say. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some of the story in my own words. And then I'm going to read to you the dialogue parts because I really, really don't want to get those wrong. So... Being a big person speaks about what you're made of inside. Now, we know that Goliath was a big guy. But I'm about to show you that he was small inside. And how many of you know that David wasn't a big guy? But he was a giant inside because of his character. And character is what God is after. This is so important. In my own, actually just thinking right now, in my own 
Bible reading this week, it was the story of Saul. And Saul, if you didn't know, was the first king of Israel. So Israel was God's chosen people. And then they said, thank you for rescuing us and making us a people. Thank you, God. But everyone else has a physical king. And here we sit with a spiritual king. And it's awkward. We want a physical king too. And God says, that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. Because a physical king will, he will take your sons at the right age and he will draft them into the army. He will take your people who can work and he will make them work his land so that he can get rich. He will take your daughters and they will become his wives and his concubines. So, so God said to them, I know what you want, but it's not a good idea. And the people said, thank you for your input, but we still want a physical king. And so that's exactly what happened. And then Samuel went and he anointed Saul. Now Saul, the Bible says, it uses some very strange descriptions in the Bible. But one of the things it says about Saul, well, two things. It says, one, he was head and shoulders above other people, which means he was tall. He was a man of stature. The other thing was that he was good looking. Is that important? I'm not sure. But that's what the Bible says. You've got this good looking tall guy. And he becomes the very first king of Israel. And he makes a lot of stupid decisions. So he does exactly what God says, and he drafts an army, and he makes decisions. He doesn't wait for God. He doesn't ask God when he wants to go into battle. He just sort of goes. And so there's a whole lot of bad things that happen till God gets to a point where he says, you know what? I'm taking my hand off Saul, and I'm choosing someone else. And he tells Samuel, who's the prophet at the time, go to the house of Jesse, and go and look for someone else. And so that's exactly what happens. And Samuel arrives at the house of Jesse, who's a father. He's a father of eight sons. Who here has got more than five children? Anybody? You would be crazy if you had more. I don't even know how people cope. Okay, I've got two and my hands are full. Um, so he had eight sons. I don't know if he had any daughters, but we do know that he had eight sons. And when, when Samuel stepped into his house... He looked at the firstborn, who was, I mean, all these sons were good looking. So obviously Jesse was a stud himself. So we've got eight sons. He steps in, he looks at Eliab, the eldest, and he says, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. I mean, I've seen Saul. He's tall, he's good looking, so is this guy. I mean, clearly there's a way here that this has got to be the guy. And God says to him straight away, and this is a verse that you might have heard before. He says, Don't judge by the outside. God doesn't do that. What does God judge by? The heart. He judges by the inside. He looks at the character of a man. You see, Samuel didn't know this, but God was choosing a descendant for Jesus. That's quite significant. So he's not just choosing the next king. As far as Samuel's concerned, he's just choosing the next king, the guy who's going to replace Saul. But as far as God's concerned, he's choosing a descendant of Jesus himself. And so character was much more important than good looks. A good-looking guy isn't going to lead a, a nation well, necessarily. Just because you're good-looking doesn't mean you can lead well. And so he said, don't judge by the outside appearance. God looks at the heart of a man. That's why we're talking about what we're talking about today. Because your character, your heart, comes through in the words that you say. And what I'm saying is we need to check that our characters are lined up to the Word of God this morning. Not just our words. You can't, you're not just altering the words. You've got to alter this so that this alters. That's the important thing about what we're doing. So being a big person speaks about what you're made of inside. It's about having a bigness of heart or spirit, a bigness of character.
So, it's possible, and this is important, that you're going through something. Your words are important when you go through pressure. When you are under pressure, that's when your words start to take strain. All of us can be polite and civil and nice when everything's okay. But when stuff hits the fan, that's when your words matter. When you're under pressure, that's when your words matter. And I don't know what you might be going through, and it's very possible that it could be something something small that you're battling with right now, but it also could be something big. It could be a job. It could be being employed. It could be a marriage that's on the verge of collapse. And that's something that you're up against. It could just be a, a, a child who's been very difficult right now. It could be a child who's far from home and who's, who you just have no real connection with anymore. Um, obviously, I have no idea what is testing you. But what I'm saying is, the words that come out of your mouth when you're under that testing pressure are the things that reveal what character's really inside of you. Does that make sense? So I want to go through something now, the story. Let me carry on here. Let me carry on with the story. So it comes from, if you're following with me, it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. And it's basically the whole chapter. That's why I'm going to fast forward bits and pieces. But this is the way it starts. You've got the two armies. Israel, people of God. Philistines, people against God's people. That's it, okay? And, and throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of battles that happen between those two armies. But this was one such occasion. So under the first king of Israel, who was Saul, we've got the Israelites who are camped on one side of the valley. On the other side, I mean, you can picture Braveheart. You can picture like a field in between and like this vast army sitting over here in lines waiting to attack. And then on this side, you've got the Philistines. The people who are against God's people. Let me read it. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between two places. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley. So they faced each other on opposite sides of the valley. Then something happened. The tall man, Goliath, stepped out. Not once or twice, every single morning. So as soon as the two armies came together, which was at the start of every single day... You would have this tall guy, this giant of a man, step out of the ranks of the Philistines. And he would start to curse God and curse what God's doing. And, uh, well, I'm going to read to you some of the things that he said. The Bible talks about how big he really was. And it talks about how heavy the stuff that he wore is. And it is ridiculously heavy. I've converted it to kilograms. And, I mean, the breastplates and things are like 60 or 70 kgs. Um, his spear. You're talking about massive. This is a massive guy. Almost three meters tall. So, this is what Goliath says as he steps in front of the army. And it comes from verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? So he's teasing them. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. You're going to hear a lot of repetition of one word in everything that he says. The word you're going to hear a lot is I. He's a complete I specialist, okay? Here's a guy who just focuses on me. I'm the champion. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. Send someone. I'll take him out. 
And that's the way that he speaks the whole time. I defy the armies of Israel. Send me a man who will fight me. Completely arrogant. Big outside. Small inside. The next verse, verse 11 says, When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, we know that Jesse had eight sons. Three of them were old enough to fight in the battle and they were on the front lines. Jesse had to send supplies to his three sons because that's the way you keep an army fed is that the family comes and they do their thing and they bring their cheese and they bring their bread and whatever else they bring. And so he sent David. Remember who David was. The Bible says he was also good looking. Who knows why? The Bible says he's a good looking. He's tall, dark and handsome. That's what the Bible says. And then it goes on to say that he had beautiful eyes. I don't know why that's important, but it's in the Bible. So you've got David, and he comes, and he's got beautiful eyes, and he's a good-looking guy, and he's not old enough to fight in the army, but he is old enough to look after sheep, which is a pretty, in those days, it was a pretty menial job. It's like when I described how Lesotho was, and how those shepherds are, and they're neglected, and they're just the lowest of the low, and if they get educated, well, so be it, but no one's going to make an effort. Well, that's the same kind of thing. The shepherds, they just did the, you know, he was the youngest of all of them. He was the runt. And he sends David. Jesse now sends David. And he says, just go, leave the sheep with someone else. Go and send food to your brothers on the front line. So that's what he does. And he becomes the kind of runner. And he just sends food. And then he goes back and he brings his father a report how things are going. And he brings, and he goes there. And the one day he goes and he delivers the food. And on that occasion, he sees Goliath come out. So he, he gets there, and the men are all talking. They're terrified. Goliath's come out. He's already said his thing. And, um, and, and the people are terrified. And they start to say, you know what? You know what the king said he will do for the person who actually kills this guy? There's two things he's going to do. Let me see what they say here. He says, have you seen the giant? This is the people talking, the men ask. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. Number one, he will give that man one of his daughters for a wife. Could be good, might not be. You, you can't tell. We don't know. But number one, you get a wife of the king, or daughter, sorry, of the king, becomes your wife, which is a princess, which automatically puts you... Seriously high in rank. And then the second thing, that man's entire family will be exempt from paying SARS taxes. Now that is an awesome thing, okay? That is a prize of note, okay? It's worth trying your luck, I think, just to make that happen. So that's it. So then David says, David asked the soldiers standing by, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending the defiance, his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. So he's going around and he overheard them say, you know what the king's going to give the person who killed? So he goes and he confirms it. Is that true? Is that what he's going to get? Okay, then he goes to other people is it true? And he starts saying that to people and making sure that the story is true because, you know, for him, he's not weighing up uh, should he do it or shouldn't he do it or can he do it or can't he do it. He's just saying, okay, so I just want to make sure that when I've done this, what the prize is because it's going to happen. And so that's all he did. And his talking, which probably sounded like arrogance, but I think it was more confidence, was overheard by people who then reported it to the king, who was King Saul. And they said, there's this boy, and he's good looking with beautiful eyes. And he keeps asking the question, what, is, who's, you know, what are they going to get, the guy who kills uh, this Philistine? And so Saul says, bring him here. And this is where we pick it up. 
<clears throat> oh no, I missed a little part, and this is an important part. So while he's getting those, he's hearing those answers from the men about what he's going to win. Let me read this here, verse 28. But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. And David says, what have I done now? I was only asking a question. That's exactly how my little kids respond. What? What have I done? I haven't done I'm just asking a question. So in that situation, he did actually seem like a bit of a boy. But he was asking a question. And his brother, for, for no apparent reason, jumps on his back and says, "You just, man, go look after your three sheep, boy. Just go look after your sheep. Let the men do the men's stuff here at the front lines. You go do your boy's stuff. And, and he totally belittles him and make him little. You just want to see the battle. I know about your pride. Now, we don't know why he reacted like this, but I could speculate that when they were standing in that house and Jesse was overlooking son number one, son number two, son number three, bring in David, and David gets anointed in front of his brothers. That happened before this. I could speculate that already there, there's some resentment brewing in this guy's heart. Anyway, he says this. He walked over to some others and asked them the question. Then he gets called in front of Saul. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Verse 32. This is his speech now. This is what he's saying to the king. He's this little shepherd who's come to bring supplies to his older brother. He says this, Don't worry about this Philistine, Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Saul does exactly what we would do. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. Listen to David's words here. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. That doesn't inspire much confidence. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) You've been taking care of your father's sheep and goats, and now you want to take care of this guy. I don't think you're the man for the job. But then he carries on. He said, when a lion or bear comes to steal the lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club. And rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Well, now you take the guy seriously. When you see what he had to tackle, I mean, you take him seriously. If there's a boy who says he can kill a lion and a bear, and he looks like that with his pretty eyes, you take him seriously. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it again to this pagan Philistine. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. We'll pick up the story in a second, but this is a very interesting thing that happens here. See, Goliath was a champion. He was a fighter from his youth. He could command weapons, and he, he, he had probably killed people. He was an absolute fighter. To think of how big this guy is, the only picture that I could kind of get was this man, Robert Wadlow, who's 2.7 meters. So Saul was about 3 meters. Sorry, um, Goliath was about 3 meters. So he's a little bit taller than this guy, and this guy doesn't look too much like a fighting man. Um, but that's, that's who we've got. That's the kind of size of the person that you're dealing with. I don't know about you, that that is intimidating. 
He doesn't look like this guy with his lovely tweed uh, top on and his pants and his car. Okay, He's kitted out in army gear. You, you need to understand how serious the stakes are here. What was the taunt? If I kill you, you become our slaves. If you kill me, we'll become your slaves. So the fate of the entire nation was resting on this fight. This wasn't like, well, everyone can just try their luck. And someone will get it right eventually. No, no, you get one chance. And if you get this wrong, you submit to us. Your, your women become our women. Your kids become our kids. We get to do what we want to you. That's how big the stakes are here that you're talking about. And, uh, and David doesn't seem at all phased. For me, that speaks of a massive bigness of character and spirit. Goliath, like I said, had been a fighting man from his youth, but the chances are he had never faced anything bigger than himself. He was probably always the biggest thing in the room, the biggest thing out there. And so the chances that he had ever taken on anything bigger than himself were remote. But David wasn't a fighting man. David wasn't a big man. But David had taken on several things much bigger than himself. Can you see what I'm saying here? A bigness has nothing to do with your physical bigness. Bigness is all in here. It's all about character. It's true that the tests and challenges we go through make us bigger people. Do you know that the stuff that we mentioned earlier, the stuff that you might be going through, maybe it's financial or job or your marriage or, or your children or whatever it might be, those things that you're going through, do you know that it's possible for those things to make you bigger inside? So often we wish them away. God, get me through this. Get me out of this. Take this away from me. But in actual fact, sometimes those things are there and you can always, sorry, react in one of two ways. God, get me out of this or I'm running or God, use this to make me a bigger person. There's a verse and it comes from Romans 5 and it says this. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Anyone experienced a problem or a trial? For we know that they help us to develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So what that's saying is, junk times, if you deal with them correctly, lead to strong character. Lead to endurance that can push through other bad times. See, big people can see trials as opportunities and they rise to the challenge. Whereas small people shrink from a challenge and they think of all the reasons why they can't make it. So if you're going through stuff now, have the view that God can use what you're going through to enlarge who you are inside. Let me pick up the story. You ready? <coughs> all right. Saul gave David his armor. This is not a good move. Saul, the king of Israel, takes the king's armor and puts it on a shepherd boy. I think it was at that moment that he relinquished his king, his kingness, his kingship. And he said, this, God's called me to this, but maybe you go fight my battles for me. And he just, he was a washout as a king. He was the best there was and he wasn't very good. So he puts his armor on David. But is David used to fighting in armor? No ways. He's a shepherd. Who knows what he's wearing? A loincloth. I don't know. He's wearing a cloak. I don't know what he's wearing. But he's not wearing, a, he's not wearing armor. He's not wearing shin guards and, and shields and swords. But that's what he gets put on. And you can just imagine this guy like, 
He's been kitted out with Saul, and we know Saul's tall. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. So we're talking about a big guy's armor getting put on a normal guy who's good-looking with pretty eyes, and he's walking. And you can just imagine, like, am I meant to like take this guy out like this? It's impossible. So he says, I can't wear this. And so he takes it off, and he takes what he's used to. What's he used to? Just what he wears, and a sling, and a couple of pebbles out of a stream. And he takes that. Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer in front of him. He needed a shield bearer because he, literally, his shield was so heavy. He needed someone else just to carry that when he needed it. Sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy, this good-looking boy. Verse 43. This is now Goliath speaking to David. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. This is a pretty intimidating situation. When the fate of the nation rests on your hands and in how accurate you are here. David replied to the Philistine, listen to the bigness here. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and then I'm going to do my thing. I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that David is great. No. That there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with a sword or a spear. This is the Lord's battle. And he will give you to us. Can you hear the bigness? That's not an arrogance. Don't confuse his confidence for arrogance. You see, the thing that David does, which we could really learn a lesson from, is he remembers the past experiences. How many of us, when we get into a financial situation, we forget that God rescued us from the last financial situation and the one before that and the one before that. But we're just dealing with this one right now. So God, I'm not sure. You did well with those other ones, but now I'm in a different one and this is more money. I'm not sure if you can. Yes, you helped me in my marriage before, but I'm not quite sure if you can help. This is really far now. It might be too far. David doesn't do that. He remembers. No, no, no. No, no, no. Let me just get something straight. So God helped me kill the bear. God helped me kill the lion. So obviously God's going to help me now. One plus one equals two. There isn't another answer to this thing. For him, it's just logical. It makes sense. He's confident in it. He's confident in what God wants to do. We know the rest of the story. David takes his position, takes his sling, lets go of a stone. It sinks into the forehead of Goliath, but Goliath doesn't die. He's flawed, but he doesn't die. So David does exactly what he says he was going to do. And he takes the sword of the giant and finishes the job. Seriously, 300 style. Very graphic. And he goes and he lops off the head. And then he holds the head. I mean, it's really hectic. Eh? You could make really good movies out of this stuff. And, um, and that's, that's what David did. So he did exactly. And then, and then, of course, the Israelites who saw what was happening, their confidence just went. And all of a sudden, these weak, cowardly, nobody people just rose up and began to take their position and began to fight against the Philistines who, of course, fled. And everything that David said came true. Their bodies were strewn there for the animals and the birds to peck at and all that sort of thing. And the Israelites were able to take the plunder. And the victory was won that day because of David and his accuracy with the sling. No. Because of God. 
fighting for his people. It's a good story. It's a phenomenal story. I think we get tired of these stories that we've heard so much, but there's just so much in them. I want to quickly ask two questions that come out of the story. Are you happy to do that? Number one, here's the question, and you can ask it of yourself. Am I self-defensive or am I God-defensive? Now, David's brother was small. He was a small man inside. When David's oldest brother heard David talking to the men, he was angry. Why would he even be angry? What are you doing around here? He demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle. He was probably embarrassed that he was fighting in the Lord's army and he was having to cower away from this guy. I mean, how embarrassing for your youngest brother to come up to you, the oldest brother, fighting in the war and to find you hiding behind a rock somewhere, afraid of taking on people who God said you should take on. So God said, I'll give you the victory, and no one wanted to claim that in any way. So you've got these cowards. Here's the thing. Small people are self-defensive, and they are always concerned with how they appear in other people's eyes. Notice how Eliab spoke down to David to try and make him feel small and himself feel bigger. That's a sign of being a small person. I'm speaking to Monday here, not to Sunday. Small people speak down and shrink other people. Speaking up about people releases their potential and empowers them to grow and flourish. You ever had that from a teacher? You ever had that from a parent? where they speak life into you, that brings something out of you that you weren't even sure was there. You didn't even know it was possible, but they saw it in you. I think you can lead. Come and lead. I think you'd be a good mom. Really? You think so? But do it. I think you'd lead a small group. Well, me. Do it. Someone who can see something in you and bring it out of you. It takes a big person to be able to do that. It takes a small person to be able to find the mistakes and the problems. Everyone can do that. But to be able to call bigness out of people. Big people inspire the people around them. They bring out the positive characteristics in people. And here's the thing. They get excited when people around them go up. When people around them get bigger, they get excited. Small people, when people around them get bigger, get threatened. There's a difference. Big difference. We don't want to be people who get threatened when the people around us get bigger. Small people are always bringing those around them down to their level. You heard that illustration of crabs in a bucket. It's absolutely true. You can Google it, you can YouTube it if you want to. But if you, if you put one crab in a bucket, that crab can get out the bucket, no troubles, no problem. Because crabs have, a, have an ability to climb. But if you put just two or three crabs in that same bucket, none of them can get out. It's bizarre. Of course, they could physically get out, but they will not get out. Because as soon as one of them makes progress, the one at the bottom just grabs his leg. Oops. Come back here. Where do you think you're going? Oh, you're a bit big for us now. You're a little bit important. No, no, no. Here. And, and because they keep pulling each other down off the sides, no one goes anywhere. If they all just picked a side and climbed up, you wouldn't have a problem. But it doesn't work like that. Small people are like crabs in a bucket. They just, oh, getting a bit big for your boots, eh? Let me just cut you down to size. That's a small person inside. Listen to this. 
The best way to surround yourself with big people is by making the people around you big. Not by gathering big people around yourself. So if you're in a business or you're in a, uh, whatever it might be, in a leadership role or position in anything, and you need to grab and you need to make a committee out of people, the best way to get big people onto that committee is not by headhunting the best and the brightest. It's by taking what you've got and making them bigger. That's how you surround yourself with big people. And, and it's, you know, people, a small person will be threatened by that. Because when people start to outshine them a little bit, hey, where do you think you're going? But the best way to surround yourself with big people, you make them bigger around you. You need to be a person that inspires greatness in the people around you. Eliab was self-defensive and trying to save his own dignity. But David wasn't interested in himself. He was only interested in defending God's name. How do you speak to your wife, your kids, your colleagues, your friends, your enemies? How do you speak to them? Do you build them up? Do you grow them? Do you make them bigger people? Or do we put them down? breaks my heart when I see a parent bringing a kid down. You know, no, you know, just sit on the side. Let the people who are really talented go and do their thing. Because what that does is it just brings a smallness into your kid. We need to be people that get greatness out of our children, out of our spouse, out of our colleagues, all those sorts of things. And it happens here. That's what we don't realize. It doesn't just happen with, I don't know what, with the way we work. It happens with this. Because out of this, this speaks. And when this speaks, it either poisons or nourishes. And when it nourishes, people grow and flourish. Are you still with me? Let's do the last question as we wrap up here. So the first question was, am I self-defensive or God-defensive? And the, and the last thing we'll take a look at this morning is this. Am I self-confident or God-confident? Now, Goliath was proud and he was arrogant. And these are some of the things he said. Goliath stood and shouted, I am the Philistine champion. I defy the armies of Israel today. And he went on and on and on about how great he was. When you're confident in your own gifts and abilities, you start to live in your own strength. I don't have a problem with knowing that you're good at certain things. I think that's a good thing. I think if you play tennis well, say you play tennis well. I think if you're good at finances, say you're good at finances. There's nothing worse than someone who goes, well, you know, like I, I can hit a ball. They're in the SA team. They've been there forever, you know, but they're just like, that's a false modesty. And that doesn't help anyone. If you're good at something, be good at something. But when you're confident in your own gifts and abilities, we need to be careful because the step after that can sometimes lead to pride. And pride is such a subtle little beast. Pride is that thing that just creeps in. And, and the thing about pride, which is almost like nothing else that we have, is that God actually opposes it. If you want to be on the opposition to God, if you want God's hand essentially in your face to say no, I'm not on your side. That's what pride does. I mean, that's serious. That's what the Bible teaches. It actually says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. You want to be very confident. And we see this over and over in the Old Testament with the Israelites who became, they won a battle just like this one, and it's amazing, and God gets the glory, and then they think, we're so amazing. Look at us. We killed the Philistines. We did this. And they become proud. And then God says, okay, you think it was all you? I'm just going to walk away for a little bit and see what happens. And they get totally annihilated. 
And then they say, okay, go, 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 go. It was you. It wasn't us. It was you. You killed the Philistines. You did it. You were amazing. And God says, okay, since you're being humble, I'll give you some grace. And he steps closer. And then they begin to win. And then they go, it was us. You see, no one can stand against us. And that, that whole proverb of pride comes before a fall, that's where that comes from. Is that we can get so confident in our own gifts and our own abilities and our own strengths that that's what we're operating out of. But I love that God gives grace to the humble. And although David had incredible victories, he never gave himself credit. I mean, look, if I killed a bear with my, or a lion with my bare hands, it would be on Facebook, I promise you. Okay. It would be on Facebook for all time. It would be my profile picture in everything that I do. Because it's incredible, okay, to be able to do something like that. But David isn't like that. I mean, the kind of stuff he says, today the Lord will conquer you. He's talking to Goliath. Not him, not David's going to conquer you. I mean, David will do his part. I'll cut off your head. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But not with the sword and the spear. This is the Lord's battle. You see what he's doing all the time? He's deflecting credit. That shows an inner strength and a, and, a, and a real confidence. Because we know as Christians where our strength comes from. We know that it's not in our amazing abilities. We know that our money is, yes, we earn it, we work for it, but God gave us the gifts and the abilities. He opened the doors for us to work the way we work. You see, he's just deflecting absolutely everything. Thank you, God. It wasn't me that killed the bear. It wasn't me that killed the lion. God, you gave me the strength to protect my family's stuff. Isn't it awesome? I think there's something we can learn from that. Am I self-confident or am I God-confident? It's in God's nature to lift up the weak and make a way for those who acknowledge His hand in their lives. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your skills, on your strengths, on everything you think you know. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. I don't know about you, I want a straight path. Life's difficult enough, as it is, to still have a whole lot of curved paths. So if God can make it straight, I'm okay with that. I would like that. I would appreciate that. How does that happen? Acknowledge the Lord in everything that you do. Acknowledge His hand in everything that you do. When we say grace at our supper table, it's not a religious thing. It's not, you know, we know we need to do this, so we're the pastors of the church, so if anyone should say grace, it should be, oh, we need to say grace every time we sit down and eat. No, we're so grateful that we get to eat. I'm so grateful that God made a, made a way for us to have the food that we've got here because it could have been that I was born in a different place, in a different home, and I never had that. I didn't control where I was born. I'm so grateful that I get to sit where I sit, to have the family that I have, to eat where I eat, to eat what I eat. And it's all God. And we need to be absolutely thankful to Him for that. Big people know who they are, and they are confident in their God. Do you always try to vindicate yourself, or do you trust God? You try and set your enemies right? You try and make sure that everyone knows that you are right? Or do you trust God to sort that out? Small thinking leads to a small life. And you begin to live small. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's what Proverbs 23, 7 teaches. So here's the the so what, and it's a one-liner today. The so what of today. In every situation you face, you've got a choice to make. 
Will I be a big person or will I be a small person? 